right? Let's bow for a moment of prayer. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity you give us to study your word. Thank you, Lord, for the midweek that allows us to refocus our attention back toward the things of the Lord. So many distractions throughout the day. So many things that keep us unfocused from you. The distractions sometimes seem to be overwhelming. And yet, Lord, for a brief moment of time, we can redirect our attention to the truth of your word. We'll be able to understand more of your calling upon our life. Looking at this man, Job, this man that you did a, an incredible work in. And to understand, Lord, how it is you want to do a work in our lives as well. We realize, Lord, that you're the God today that you were in Job's day. You haven't changed. You're the same God wanting to work in the same way in the lives of your people. So our prayer, Lord, is that you'd instruct us in the way that we should go. You'd illuminate our hearts and minds that we might obey your word. And that we'd leave here so totally challenged that, Lord, we would never be afraid to live for the glory and honor of our King. That's our prayer. We anticipate what it is you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me in your Bible to Job chapter 3. Job chapter 3. We have just finished the first two chapters of Job, and upon looking at them and, and studying them, we, we see what God is doing in the life of this man, Job. Job has no idea about what's going on in heaven. He knows idea, no idea about the challenge between God and, and Satan. No idea that Satan wants Job to curse God. But yet Job, as you read chapters 1 and 2, he comes out seemingly unscathed. I mean, he has lost everything. He's lost his health, and yet he has maintained his character. He's true to form. Would it be that all of us would respond the way Job did? And yet when we come to chapter 3, things change dramatically. And when we read chapter 3, we are a little taken back by what Job says. So much so that we could even think he could be heretical in his approach to the things he says. And yet God will never condemn Job for his words. In fact, at the end of the book of Job, he affirms what Job has said. In Job 42, the Lord says, Because you have not spoken to me what is right, as he speaks to Eliphaz, as my servant Job has. So at the end of the book of Job, remember that Eliphaz did not speak rightly of God as Job did. So whatever you think about the conversation of Job, whatever you think about the things that he says, realize that God brackets the book with affirmations about Job because he's an upright, God-fearing, blameless man turning away from evil. We read chapter 1 and 2, we're like, wow, I wish I could be like that. We read chapter 3 and we think, wow, that is me, I do respond like that. And yet, there are so many lessons to learn. We have this idea that the people in Scripture, the heroes of faith, lived flawless lives. But they didn't. 
We have this idea that, that they can do no wrong, but they do. So we have this idea in our mind that when you read about Job or you read about Abraham or, or David or Daniel, that these guys were, were so spotless, so over-the-top amazing that we can, we can never live up to that kind of character. Yet the great thing about, about, about Job is that he models for us a biblical response to all of his imperfections. Because he's an imperfect, imperfect person. He's not a perfect person. He admits he's a sinner. We'll see that as we go through the text. But he models a biblical response to all of his imperfections. And that's what the Christian life really is all about. As parents, we, we don't necessarily model perfection to our, our children. But we do model a biblical response to all of our imperfections to our children. So they know how to live the life of Christ. And follow him no matter what. And Job, in chapter 3, is depleted. Absolutely discouraged. Some would even say depressed. And who could blame him, right? I've told you before that, that none of us can understand the enormous pain that Job is facing at this point in his life. And so when you read about his response, when he finally speaks after seven days of silence, you can begin to understand he's a man filled with great, enormous pain. If Job was in the hospital, he'd be quarantined. There'd be a sign on his door, no visitors, you can't see him. He's too ugly to look at. He's in too much pain. So there will be no visitors. But he's not in a hospital. He's on an ash heap. He's in the junkyard trying to get some kind of relief, some kind of reprieve, some kind of rest. But he has none and will not have any for days and days to come. For us... There are many that could be on a breaking point. Their lives are depleted. They're going through difficult times and hardship. And we must remember that that Job is suffering this not because he sinned against God. There are times we suffer consequences because of our sin. And those consequences are are severe, right? David, for example... The sword never left his house because of his sin with Bathsheba. And he reaped the consequences of his sin for the rest of his life. But there is no account of Job sinning. We, in fact, God's already given the testimony that he has not sinned against him and that he lives an upright life. And yet, Job has faced severe pain and, and turmoil. The last words that we heard him speak were to his wife in chapter 2. She appears on the scene. She says one thing, curse God and die. And he doesn't. Simply because can we accept good from God and not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Which helps us understand, and we talked about this last week, that, that 
Satan will use those closest to you because Satan's not done yet. Satan is going to use his three friends to try to get him to curse God. Now, the three friends don't see themselves as being used of Satan, just like Job's wife didn't see herself being used of Satan, just like Peter didn't see himself being used of Satan either. When he asked the Lord or told the Lord, he didn't know what his mission was, that he had made a mistake about dying on the cross. And the Lord said to him, get thee behind me, Satan. You see, when someone close to you doesn't have in mind the purposes of God, they're being used by Satan to deter you from the mission that God's called you to. They might not even know it. Peter didn't know it. Sarah didn't know it with Abraham. Job's wife didn't know it. His three friends don't know it. That's why it's always, always important to be wise and to understand what God is doing and what God is saying, that we might follow him explicitly. So let me read to you the third chapter. It's only 26 verses long. We'll read it and then make some comments about it. Afterward, Job opened his mouth. And cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was to be born. And the night which said, a boy is conceived. Oh, by the way, that's a great statement concerning those who believe in abortion. That conception is birth. Birth is not nine months later, but conception actually is the birth of the child. And Job affirms that. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Let those cursed who curse today who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. Let the stars of its twilight be darkened. Let it wait for light, but have none. And let it not see the breaking dawn, because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me? And why the breasts that I should suck? For now I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept, then I would have been at rest with the kings and with counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with the princes who had gold who were filling their houses with silver or like a miscarriage which is discarded. I would not be as infants that never saw light. There the wicked cease from raging And there the weary are at rest. The prisoners are at ease together. They do not hear the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there. And the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who suffers? And life to the bitter of soul who long for death, but there is none. And dig for it more than for hidden treasures. Who greatly rejoice and exult when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? For my groanings come at the sight of my food. 
and my cries pour out like water. For what I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet, and I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. Quite a difference between chapters 1 and chapters 2. And Job, having sat where he is for seven days, seven days of silence, remember his three friends gathered around him, and were so awestruck by how he was disfigured, so awestruck by the way he was suffering, they could not even speak a word, so they sat with him. And so for seven days, Job sits in silence. He sits suffering in silence. And there's no rest, probably very little sleep. No way to relieve the pain that he's going through. And all the questions in his mind, what has happened? How did everything that was so good get so bad so fast? And why is this happening to me? And all this is going on in his mind. And it's not like his wife is there with her arms around him, consoling him, loving on him, praying with him. Nope, she's nowhere to be found. Once she encouraged him to curse God and die, she goes off the scene. So there he sits, totally alone, totally abandoned, except for the three friends around him. But in all reality, he's still alone. They're not saying anything. And all these questions are going through his mind. What on earth is happening? Now think about this in your life and mine. We'd have the same kind of questions. What is going on? How did this happen to me so fast? How did I get this disease so quick? Where did it come from? What did I do? Not even expressing the the thought of the loss of his children and the loss of his possessions and all that he had. His wife, who was supposed to love him and be his number one helpmate, was no help at all. He was completely isolated and rejected. And when his three friends finally opened their mouths, the rejection seems to be even stronger and harder to accept. This is what Job is. It's really hard for us to put ourselves in that ash heap. It's hard for us to understand the turmoil that he's going through. It's hard for us to grasp the amount of pain that he's facing every moment of every day with no relief. There's no way we can understand it. And yet it's on the pages of Scripture for us to read it. And as Job begins to now open his mouth, he's not going to speak to the three friends. He's not going to speak to God. He's just voicing his inner turmoil. He's speaking out loud. You ever done that? You know? It's okay to speak out loud. Just don't answer yourself out loud, right? And so he speaks out loud because he's going to break the silence, which then will ensue with his friends believing that now they can speak up because they're going to listen to all that he says. And instead of listening to his heart, They hear his words, and they use his words against him. And so what begins as the discussion soon turns to a debate. And that's the last thing you want to do with somebody who's suffering, 
is to debate why they are suffering. But that's why they're called miserable comforters. Not the kind of people you want to visit you when you're, you're sick. But anyway, I want you to see four points this evening. We want to see Job's personal agony in terms of how it's expressed in his lamentation, how it's explained by his questions, how it's exhibited through his frustrations, and then how it's extended to your situation and mine 4,000 years later by way of application. Okay? So, let's look first of all at Job's personal agony as it's expressed in his lamentation. Notice, 13 times he says, let it be, or may it be. In Hebrew, it's a, it's a, it's a verb of wishing. He is wishing that things were different. He was wishing things could be changed. They can't be. He doesn't curse God, but he does curse the day of his birth. Why? Well, if he's not born, he's not going to suffer. If he's not born, his children will not be born. His children will not suffer and die. So maybe the best part of life is never to have been born at all. Now think about this. Job is not the only person who says this in Scripture. Right? Think about the psalmist in Psalm 88. If you were with us this summer, hopefully you were. Bruce covered this psalm. It's the saddest of the 150. Remember what the psalmist said. Some think it's even Job who wrote Psalm 88. Some believe it's someone writing about what Job said in Psalm 88. Some believe it's a man filled with leprosy in Psalm 88. We just don't know, which is a good thing. Sometimes it's good not to know. We we are such control freaks, we want to know everything. Sometimes it's good just not to know. What kind of disease did Job have? We want to try to explain it so we can understand it. You can't explain it, so don't try to understand it. So Psalm 88 says this. O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and in the night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul has had enough troubles, and my life has drawn near to Sheol. I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I have become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the lowest pit, in dark places, in the depths. Your wrath has rested upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. You have removed my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an object of loathing to them. I am shut up and cannot go out. My eyes, or my eye, has wasted away because of affliction. I have called upon you every day, O Lord. I have spread out my hands to you. Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? 
Will your wonders be made known in the darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help. And in the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I was afflicted and about to die. From my youth on, I suffer your terrors. I am overcome. Your burning anger has passed over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. They have surrounded me like water all day long. They have encompassed me together. Altogether, you have removed lover and friend far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. You read that and you think, whoa, this guy is in a whole bunch of trouble. He's cried to the Lord and the Lord has not answered. You've been there. I'm sure you have. Jeremiah, another man. Jeremiah 20. Cursed be the day when I was born. What? Jeremiah, the great prophet. Cursed be the day I was born. Jeremiah 20, verse number 14. Let the day not be blessed when my mother bore me. Oh. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father saying, a baby boy has been born to you and made him very happy. Cursed be the day when my father heard that I was a boy born to him. And remember, Jeremiah chapter 1. The whole thing about God's sovereignty, how he was formed specifically in the womb. How Jeremiah was called out by God from the womb. And now Jeremiah is cursing the day that he was born and that his father knew that he was a boy. But let that man be like cities which the Lord overthrew without relenting. And let him hear an outcry in the morning and a shout of alarm at noon. Because he did not kill me before birth so that my mother would have been my grave and her womb ever pregnant. Why did I ever come forth from the womb to look on trouble and sorrow so that my days have been spent in shame? Interesting. Elijah. Remember Elijah? Israel's greatest prophet. Wished that God would kill him. First Kings 19, verse number 4. How about Jonah? Jonah chapter 4. He asked God to kill him. What is this? All these prophets, these great men of God, asking God to kill them. That things would be done with them forever. Sometimes we don't like to see the rawness of a person's soul. But isn't it unique how God has put this on the pages of Scripture? Just be glad that the rawness of your soul when you speak isn't put on the pages of Scripture for us to read what you say. Think about that. But God allows us to read about Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was rejected. Jeremiah was isolated. Nobody listened to Jeremiah. Even though he was called by God, nobody cared. He was put in stocks and he was beaten and thrown in prison. Elijah, he was just being chased by Jezebel. But he wished he was dead. And he had just called down fire from heaven and been used in a great way in the life of Israel. Jonah, great prophet to Nineveh. But because they repented, he wanted to die. Figure that. But Job, different character. Completely Afflicted from head to toe. Constant pain. Lost everything. 
And so God lets him speak. God never says, shame on you, Job. Wrong for saying that, Job. God never criticizes nor condemns the words of Job. Think about that. He curses the day of his birth. He does not curse God. Listen. Distress, the cry of distress, is not the same as the cry of distrust. Please remember that. The cry of distress is not the same as the cry of distrust. Think about the Lord Jesus on the cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was the cry of our Lord. As he hung on Calvary's tree, and for those three hours of darkness, when the full wrath of God fell upon him, because he would bear your sin and mine, he was forsaken by his God. Didn't call him Father. Only time in his life he never called on God his Father. He just called him my God, my God. Because the distress and the anguish that he faced did not mean distrust at all. Because he truly trusted in his Father. That's why when it was over, after that broken fellowship, that broken communion where God the Father had forsaken the Son because he turned his back on him because he bore the sin of the world. That he would say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. But the cry of distress did not mean a cry of distrust. Same with Job. But this is his lamentation. This is the man's cry. It's expressed in all kinds of ways. He speaks to the fact that his life should be in darkness, deep shadow, a cloud, blackness, thick darkness. He is facing his pain head on. He is letting out what's going on on the inside. He has to express it some way, and that's what he's doing. He's recognizing that it's real. It's painful. But to recognize it and to admit it is to express the reality of his pain. If he laid there emotionless, if he laid there like a few scabs here, no big deal, I can scrape those babies off, we're good to go. That's not how he can live his life. No, he was in pain. Again, we can't wrap our arms around this. We can't even begin to fathom in our mind all of it, what he's going through. We just can't. We're trying. We're trying as best as we possibly can to understand it. We're reading it on the pages of scriptures, but to really digest it, we've never experienced this kind of pain. On a scale of 1 to 10, this is a 15. It goes off the scale. Most of us can't relate. In fact, I'd be embarrassed to sit down with Job and talk to him about my pains. I really would. I'd really be embarrassed. I've I've lost. I've lost a wife. But I'd be embarrassed to speak about my loss compared to Job's loss. Right? I've suffered pain. I've had three back surgeries. Hey, you know what? But that's nothing 
They shot me up with morphine. I was good to go. And they did surgery on my back. But not for Job. There's no hospital to go to. There's no ointment to put on him. Nothing to soothe his sores. He's in pain. So I'd be embarrassed to bring up all my pain and all my loss and even my my rejections to, to Job because they just pale in comparison to what he's going through. But yet, 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 I'm able to understand how it is God wants to teach me something unique in his life, and therefore I listen intently. So Job's personal agony is expressed in his lamentation. It's explained in his questions. He asked them. Something all of us ask. Verse 11, why didn't you let me die at birth? Verse 12, why didn't you dry up my mother's milk so I would starve? Verses 20 to 22, why do you keep wicked people like me alive? Why? Just let me die. Let it be over. Why do you do this? The why question. Listen, there's nothing wrong with asking a why question. You just can't demand that God answer your why question. We somehow think that God owes us an explanation. And we told you that that as you go through this, God's never going to do that for Job. God's never going to give him an explanation, which is really good because you know what? There are so many things that we go through that cannot be explained this side of eternity. Remember, it's not the explanation God gives. It's the revelation that God gives. It's a revelation of himself. But God doesn't do that right away. He does that at the right time. God's timing is always perfect and happens in a way that is best for Job. And by the way, whatever your pain, whatever your distress, whatever your hardship, whatever your trial, God will answer with a revelation of himself when he's ready, when it's time to give you the answer. Not before then. Because one of the things that God's going to reveal to Job is a little bit more about the afterlife. Because his view of the afterlife is limited. That wasn't fully revealed until the New Testament. 2 Timothy 1.10, that because the gospel of God unveils to us, lights the way to life and immortality. But Job's understanding of the afterlife is very limited as he begins to explain these words in Job 3 when he says, you know what, for now, I would lie down, I would be quiet, I would sleep, I'd be at rest, I'd be with kings, I'd be with counselors, I'd be with princes, I'd be with all people who were, who were miscarried, I'd be with all those people. But what God is going to do is unveil to him more and more about the afterlife. So one of the purposes of Job's suffering is to understand more and more about eternity in the afterlife because he doesn't have a, well, a good understanding of it at this point. He doesn't know that, but it will be revealed to him as time goes on. Because this is, he has a very limited knowledge in terms of what happens after death. So he asks the questions. And rightly so. He doesn't demand answers. He just wants to know questions. And you know what? The, the answer will, will never suffice. Let's say Job got the answer. Would he feel any better if he got the answer? 
Would all the sores go away if he knew that God said, well, this is what I did. Job and I, I mean, Satan and I had this uh, conversation, and I told him he could do anything he wanted. He just couldn't kill you, and so this is what you got. Would that make him feel any better? Or that, you know, Satan and I had this conversation, and he could do whatever he wanted. He just couldn't touch your life, and so he took all your kids away. How would that make Job feel? Would he be better? See, we think that if we had the answer to the why question, we'd feel a whole lot better. We'd be in more control. Now I know why. But the pain's still there. The loss is still there. It's still there. So it's better that he doesn't know. Why? Because it causes him to continually trust his God. It causes him to continually lean upon his God, depend upon his God. It drives him to God, even though he does not know. So, as God begins to unveil these things to him, in time down the road, Job sits and wonders. His personal agony is expressed in his lamentation. It's explained by his questions, and it's exhibited through his frustrations. You can see his frustration in verse number 24. He's never without pain and suffering. In verse number 24, he says, For my groanings come at the sight of my food, and my cries pour out like water. In other words, food comes, I'm still in pain. I'm still crying out, and my tears flow like water. There's a never-ending part to my pain. It just keeps coming. And in verse 25, the one thing I didn't want to happen has happened. The greatest fear that I could ever imagine has come upon me. I've lost everything. And my health is tearing my life apart. So, even in verse number 26, he speaks of the fact that peace and safety and serenity used to be mine. I used to be protected, but now I'm not. In fact, he closes with these words. He says, I am not at ease, I, nor am I quiet, and I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. That's how he ends his statement. Having said that, how do we respond to all this? What do we do? So let's extend everything to our situation, to our timetable today. You know, Paul asked for God to remove his thorn in the side. Have you ever asked God to remove something? He knew that it was a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. He knew that. And so in 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about asking God to remove that from him. He did it three times. I would have asked 300 times, but he asked just three times. And God said, nope, not going to do it. He asked for his turmoil to be removed. And instead, God gave him something he didn't ask for. He gave him grace. He gave him grace to strengthen him, to cause him to stand 
and that in his weakness he would be strong. He didn't ask for grace. He asked for the pain to be removed. Have you ever done that? Have you ever asked for something to be removed? Something to be totally gone? Maybe it's a situation at work that's so bad, Lord, remove them. But God doesn't remove them. Lord, remove me, but God doesn't remove you. You're still there. And their words and their persecution becomes more and more severe. And God says, no, I'm not going to remove that from you. Instead, I'm going to give you the grace to sustain you in that situation. You have have a physical ailment. You're saying, Lord, remove this from me. Take it from me. God says, no, I'm not going to remove it. I'm going to keep it there. I'm going to give you the grace to sustain you through it. You've incurred an incredible loss in your family. And you lay in bed at night alone. You're saying, God, would you please take me home? And God says, no, I'm not going to take you home. I'm going to keep you right here. I'm going to give you the grace to sustain you. That's very important to understand. That there are things that we go through that we wish we never have to go through. That's why Job says, why didn't I die at birth? I would never have to face this stuff. But he was born. And he was facing it. And God wasn't going to remove it. At least not just yet. And for Paul, God never removed it. But God gave him grace. So having said that, I want to help you understand how it is God's grace will sustain you through whatever turmoil you encounter. Because that's what you're going to get no matter what. Granted, God might remove it from you. He might remove that that tumor that's cancerous. He might remove that person that's cantankerous at work and that's constantly persecuting you. He might remove that loneliness from your life and give you another wife, as he did me years ago. But then again, he might not. But he will give you his grace. And that grace will sustain you. How does that happen? Number one, you must acknowledge the God of grace. You must acknowledge the God of of grace. You know our God is a God of grace. Remember way back in the book of Exodus, the 34th chapter, when Moses wanted to see God face to face? He wanted to Lord, show me your glory. Oh, I just, I just need to see your glory. And the Lord says, I, I can't let you see my face because if I do, if I do, I'm going to have to kill you. So I'm going to let all my goodness pass before you. So whatever his glory is, it's all around his goodness. And so he says, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to you. Be gracious to you, Moses. And so the Lord hides him in the cleft of the rock and the Lord passes by him. And it says in verse number 5 of chapter 34, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious. Gracious. You want to know about the glory of the Lord? He is a gracious God. He is a compassionate God. 30 
excuse me, 27 different times Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is quoted in the Old Testament. This becomes the benchmark for Israel's history. Our God is compassionate. Our God is gracious. Our God is forgiving. Our God is full of mercy, abounding in truth. This is who our God is. You must acknowledge the God of all grace. You can ask whatever question you want to ask. Why am I this way? Why am I not that way? Why has this happened to me? Why at this time has this happened to me? And the why question may or may not be answered, but more than likely it will never be answered. But the who question is that there's a God of grace behind everything. That everything is from him, through him, and to him again Romans eleven thirty six. to him be the glory both now and forever and ever. Amen. Therefore, you must acknowledge that he is the God of grace. In fact, listen to this. <clears throat> Not only is God the Father, the God of grace, Christ is full of grace and truth. John 1, 14, right? Christ is full of grace. He's full of truth. God is the God of grace. Hebrews 10, 29, the Spirit is called the Spirit of grace. So because they're all one, right? One God manifest in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they're all grace. And God wants you to acknowledge him as the God of grace. In 1 Peter 4.10, Peter talks about the manifold grace of God, the varying shapes of that grace that goes along, as we said earlier, about the manifold trials that come your way different shapes and sizes, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a grace given to you for every shape and trial of every, for every shape of every trial that comes your way. Because God is a God of grace. We sang it earlier. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. My grace shall be your supply. The grace of Almighty God. You must acknowledge the God of grace. First Peter 5.10, he's called the God of all grace. Not just the God of grace. The God of all grace. God's unmerited favor toward undeserved sinners. God's unmerited favor towards undeserved sinners. God has what is called a common grace as well as a special grace. A common grace is that everyone experiences that. It's common, right? You breathe, common grace. You're alive, common grace, right? Your boss, who's a heathen, is alive, common grace, right? The wages of sin is death. When you sin, you should die. But you don't. Why? Grace. It's all about common grace. But special grace is saving grace. Special grace is sustaining grace. Special grace is sanctifying grace. And that comes to the believer. For by grace are you saved through faith, and not yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You must acknowledge the God of grace. And then number two, you must accept the gospel of grace. You must accept the gospel of grace. 
Once you acknowledge that God is full of grace and full of truth, that the Spirit is nothing but grace, and that God is the God of all grace, you must accept the gospel of grace. We don't deserve the gospel. We don't deserve to be saved. We're undeserving. But God is graceful. Remember Noah? First time the word grace is used in the Bible? Genesis chapter 6. The whole world was full of evil. And all they did was sin continually against God. But God graced Noah. Noah was just as evil as everybody else was. Noah was just as sinful as everybody else was. He was continually sinning against God too. But God said, I chose to grace Noah. He graced him. And that's why Noah and his family were saved. Because of the grace of God. That's why anybody's saved, right? We're not saved because of good works. We're not saved because of who we are. We're not saved because we're famous people. We're not saved because of anything other than the fact that God decides to grace us. We've been graced. And we accept that grace. Because we acknowledge the God of all grace. That's why Titus chapter 2 is, is so important. Because in Titus chapter 2, the Bible says in verse number 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Have you accepted the gospel of grace? Because you've acknowledged the God of all grace. Number three. Number three. Need to apply the word of grace. You need to apply the word of grace. Now, this is very important. Listen carefully. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse number 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. So, if I accept the God of grace, I mean, excuse me, acknowledge the God of grace, and accept the gospel of grace, the very next thing I need to realize is that I need to apply the word of grace to my life. In other words, I don't deserve to have God's word. But God gave it to me. God granted it to me so I could read it, understand it, and believe all that he says. Now, the Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And therefore, we need to humble ourselves, 1 Peter 5, 6, under the mighty hand of God's destiny. That's very important. Because you see, our refusal to submit to God's mighty hand of destiny. For Job, it was the hand of destiny that, that signified the fact that he would lose everything and his health. And a proud man will never experience the grace of God. Because God resists the proud. But he does give grace to the humble. That's why we submit ourselves under God's mighty hand of destiny and follow his direction. So we apply the word of grace to our lives. Psalm 119 says it this way. Verse number 25. My soul cleaves to the dust. 
Revive me according to your word. Revival in your distress only comes from the word of God. Job, listen, Job didn't have this. Job couldn't receive a Bible, open it up, and read Psalm 119, verse number 25. He didn't have the book of the law. He didn't have any of that. He couldn't go and apply the word of grace because he only knew what was passed down from generation to generation. He didn't have a Bible to read. How blessed are we to be able to open it up and read it? Look what it says in Psalm 119, verse number 107. I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Wow. The psalmist says, I am exceedingly afflicted. Well, what do you do when you're exceedingly afflicted? You call upon the Lord. You read his word. Because the word of God is what revives you. So Paul says in Acts 20, I commend you to God. And the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, which is able to strengthen you, which is able to lift you because nothing else can. So I'm going to give you the word of his grace to do that. The psalmist says, when I am exceedingly afflicted, it's the word of God that revives me. Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse number 153. Look upon my affliction and rescue me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great are your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. I behold the treacherous and loathe them because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Again, revive me, revive me, revive me. How? According to your righteous ordinances, your statutes your precepts. You see, when God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient. It's sufficient because Paul acknowledged the God of grace, had already accepted the gospel of grace, and was willing to apply the word of grace to his life. Number four, you need to approach the throne of grace. Right? Approach the throne of grace. Hebrews 4. If you can recall our study in Hebrews, the fourth chapter, 15th verse, many, 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 many months ago, says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. You need to approach the throne of grace. Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, why does God resist the proud? Because the proud does not approach the throne of grace. He wants God to give him answers. He demands that God gives them answers. But the humble person, he bows before his God, cries out to God and pleads with him, approaches the throne of grace. Remember Isaiah 30? This is so good. Isaiah 30, verse number 18. The Lord longs 
to be gracious to you. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long or wait or rely on him. Ever think about how the Lord longs to be gracious to you? He just wants to bestow grace upon grace upon grace to sustain you, to strengthen you. But are you willing to approach the throne of grace? To come to him? He waits on high. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for you to come to him. He's filled with all his grace. He's full of grace and truth. He's the God of all grace, looking to dispense grace that will sustain and suffice in every time of need. And yet all he asks is that you approach the throne of grace because he is the high priest who can sympathize with whatever weakness that you have. Your pastor cannot. Your husband, your wife, your spouse cannot. Your children, they cannot. But God, oh, he can. So he longs to be gracious to you. He waits on high to bestow grace upon you. Undeserved, unmerited favor toward undeserved sinners. So, having acknowledged the God of all grace, having accepted the gospel of grace, having applied the word of grace and approached the throne of grace, you need to aspire to grow in grace. 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord. You aspire to do that? We grow in grace, we grow in knowledge. The two kind of go together, but they are distinct. Grace all is about character traits. Grace is what makes you vulnerable. Knowledge is what makes you, you stable. Grace is what makes you sensitive. Knowledge is what makes you strong. But you are to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Do you aspire to grow in that grace? What does it mean? Well, if the Lord is full of grace and truth, you're growing in your understanding of the God who is God of grace. You aspire to that because you want to exemplify His grace. So you seek to follow your God and honor your God. And then lastly, lastly, you act upon the strength of His grace. You act upon the strength of his grace. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse number 1. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now you act upon the strength of grace because it strengthens you. Unlike anything else, you say, how does that happen? Listen, you don't need, I said this to you before, grace for the loss of a loved one till you lose a loved one. You don't need cancer grace until you get cancer. You don't need loss of a job grace until you lose your job. 
You look at people and say, well, how do they ever do that? Well, you don't, you're not there, so you don't need the grace for that. God dispenses his grace to those who are in need to sustain them during that particular need, the manifold grace of God. And so, as Amy Carmichael said, it was pain that knocked upon my door and said that she had come to stay. And though I would not welcome her, but bade her go away, she entered in. And like my own shade, she followed after me. And from her stabbing, stinging sword, no moment was I free. And then one day another knocked most quietly at my door. I said, no, pain is here. There is no room for more. Then I heard his tender voice, "'Tis I be not afraid. And from that day he entered in, oh, the difference he has made. When the God of grace enters the heart, when the Spirit of grace enters the heart, when the Son that is full of grace and truth enters the heart, Grace is dispensed in time of need. So God would say to Paul, I'm not going to remove it. It's going to be with you for the rest of your life. But my grace is sufficient for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for tonight and a chance to briefly spend time in your word and our prayer is that, Lord, you would continue to instruct us in the way that we should go. We pray for those, Lord, who are in pain tonight, physically, emotionally, mentally, however that pain might manifest itself. We pray, Lord, that they would apply the truths of Scripture to their lives, and they would approach the throne of grace, having acknowledged you as the God of all grace, and aspire to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord. They might be able to act upon the strength of your grace. Oh, Lord, we so come to you because we can go to no one else. You are our God, and you are the God of all grace. So in our time of need, we come to you, as only we should. And may you deal with us as you see fit, for the glory of your kingdom until you come again as you most surely will. In Jesus' name, amen.